mean, this is, like I said, a battle of our lifetime. And, um, you know, what happens within the next, you know, weeks and months and years is going to impact, you know, patients for years and generations. You need to decide who is your patient. And if the woman is your patient, then in some ways you have no choice but to do these because it's our job as women's health clinicians to keep, help keep women safe. People say clinic escorts are heroes and that doesn't really hit me until stuff like almost getting hit by a car or just being here and getting standing ovations from random strangers who like recognize the importance of our work when maybe we don't, when we're just neck deep in all the madness. Testing, testing, testing. Oh my God. Okay. Do I sound loud? Okay. You sound great. Do you sound loud enough? Yes. You sound kind of like you're yelling, but I feel like that's <laughs> appropriate. Okay. Okay. This welcome. Is, welcome back to the V word. Vagina, vagina, vagina. This is Dr. Jen. And Dr. Erica. And I sound like I'm yelling because I am yelling. Today is a bit of a yelling episode. I have been saving... I've been wanting to talk about abortion for a long time, and I feel like there's just too much to talk about, and it's too much to, uh, to squeeze into one episode, but we're going to try. Bear with us. It's a little bit of a long episode. We're going to try to set it up from the beginning where we talk through a little bit of the history of legislation, try to give you like a little primer so that you can understand what's happening. Reproductive health policy 101. Yes. Only 101. But then stay tuned because I'm so proud of this episode, you guys. We were privileged enough to go to Physicians for Reproductive Health's uh, annual Voices of Courage event in New York City. They invited us out and we interviewed um, several of the people that they honored. We interviewed Dr. Stephanie Ho, Dr. Rachel Mash, um, and some of the clinic escorts of the three Alabama clinics who are the people who escort women and people with uteruses into abortion clinics. Past to get all the their, protesters. Past all the protesters. So snaps to all those snap, people. Snap, 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 snap. I am so privileged to, to have met these people. You're going to hear all of their voices. It's such an amazing episode, so definitely stay tuned because we're so honored to... To talk to these people who are actually living these realities right now in, um, you know, all in parts of the country, especially the South. Yeah. So, here we go. Here we go. There's no news. This is the news. Okay. This is all the news, guys. This is all the news you're going to need Actually, to know. it's not all the news, which is sad because there's so much I'm try crazy news, but... Okay. So, Roe. Here's the real quick primer on Roe. Before Roe v. Wade, before January 22nd, 1973, which was when the Supreme Court passed this landmark legislation... Abortion was not as heavily regulated and certainly wasn't a partisan issue, at least not as it is today. But what happened is in 1973, the courts, the Supreme Court, essentially said that the states don't have the right to regulate abortion in such a way where it uh, interferes with the woman's health or um, at really specific times throughout these different trimesters. So they split up abortion into three different trimesters. Or the protection of abortion. Right. In the first trimester, they said that the state really couldn't interfere. It's between the woman and her physician. And it actually says it leaves the, the government cannot interfere with the decision of the attending physician, which I yes. also just find like to be incredibly as the attending physician very unfeminist it should obviously be the woman's decision in consultation with her oh, physician yeah, yeah. but I okay. think like it's important to remember the patriarchy is is present even in Roe. In the second trimester it says that the physician can regulate um, abortion as is reasonably related to maternal health again it still says that the state cannot interfere here that it just essentially take the second trimester with a grain of salt and leave the decision up to the, the person, the, the woman, and her physician. And then it says that in the third trimester, 
um, that abortion can still be legal in some cases, You can, um, but that the state can also regulate and even prescribe abortion except where necessary for the preservation of life or health for a woman. So essentially it's saying, it's splitting it up into three different trimesters and it's very clearly setting out guidelines for where and how states can interfere, but saying that essentially nationwide, abortion should be a decision that's left to um, the woman and her physician. But real quick, after Roe v. Wade happened, so great, wonderful abortion is, the decision to have an abortion is protected. In 1977, Congress comes in with, bam, the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is not a Supreme Court decision, but affects abortion access in this country at least as much as Roe v. Wade. What the Hyde Amendment is a budget rider that's passed every year. It's affirmed every year by Congress and says that no federal funding can be used to obtain an abortion, meaning that no one who has Medicaid insurance, who gets their insurance through the government because they work for the government, who works for the armed services, who gets their insurance through the Indian Health Project, can use their insurance to obtain an abortion. There are some states who have decided to use their state Medicaid dollars to allow women to have have abortions and use their insurance, including, including California SNAPs. But that is state Medicaid money, not federal money. And I think this is a really important thing because we're so focused on Roe v. Wade as the right to abortion, but really the Hyde Amendment takes away that right for poor women throughout the United States. Okay, and what else takes it away? Another, we could go on and on about legislation, but the other thing I think you really need to understand is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Another Supreme Court case. Another Supreme Court case, 1992. It reaffirmed the right to abortion, but it said, it created this whole idea of, okay, well, in some situations, the state can legislate abortion or regulate abortion if, as long as it doesn't create, quote unquote, undue burden to the woman. So wait, backing up a little bit, this case, this Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they were talking about specific restrictions on abortion. They were trying to see if people could have, needed to have consent from their partner. I'll just do that part over again then. Yeah, do that, because I think it, that is like very important <laughs> context yeah. for Casey. Okay, so then fast forward, one more case that we, I think you really need to understand to sort of see where we are today is Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, a Supreme Court case that actually came out of a case from um, Pennsylvania that this was close saying- close to home for me, yeah, Pennsylvania. because you're from Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so said that in, in that situation, the state was trying to say that women or girls could not have abortions without parental consent. And that was challenged, went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which finally decided that, yes, they're still going to protect the right to abortion, but they've now created this, uh, this um, rule where you can't regulate abortion if you're creating, quote unquote, undue burden to women. So in this situation, they found that involving your parents does not create undue burden and that they wanted to actually make sure that this was a law that could could go through for some states. But it became this sort of framework for a lot of other states and a lot of other laws that have since emerged where it's sort of the standard now. Like we are a late, we, we allow abortion regulation as long as it doesn't cross this sort of vague, invisible line. What does undue burden mean? It's really hard to say. And that is, this concept is so important because it is the context, it's really the focus of all of the abortion laws of right now right. is actually, right. I think everyone is sort of thinking about being worried about Roe v. Wade, but more realistically, uh, what's happening right now is just this pushing back of the line of what undue burden means right. to create great, said. great burdens for people who are trying to obtain abortions. The other thing I really want to point out with Casey, too, that we kind of gloss over a lot of times is that it turned the trimester framework from Roe v. Wade 
into a, um, a binary framework, which is viable, non-viable. So instead of um, when you make these laws referring to what's okay in the first, second, and tri third trimester, they essentially started referring to laws that were okay in the viability period and the non-viability period. And what's really sticky, intentionally sticky with this, is that viability is a product of technology. So what was viable in 1992 potentially is not the same as what's viable in right now or in 1973. And also, there are some pregnancies that will never be viable. A fetus that's born missing its head or part an of ectopic. its head. An ectopic. An ectopic pregnancy. Um, you know, anencephalic yeah. pregnancies, like we were saying, these will never be viable. So it's, it's a very vague area, and they know that. And they changed it because you can't argue with what is the first trimester, what's not the first trimester. You can argue with what is viable. And what is an undue burden? So there are subsequent things, uh, subsequent Supreme Court cases where they've really said uh, that poverty doesn't count as an undue burden. So basically, oh like God. refusing to allow women to use their Medicaid insurance mm -hmm. to pay for abortion, that doesn't count as an undue burden, even though it makes people unable to obtain an abortion. So I, it's it's so frustrating to me, like that, how does that not count as an undue burden when you're literally telling people they can't afford an abortion? Right, correct. Yet their Medicaid covers everything else related to Ugh. pregnancy, right? So that, that Supreme Court case is Harris versus McRae. That's the one that basically said, we don't have to compensate for poverty. Ridiculous. Okay, so now what is happening right now? That's the real quick, fast primer. Obviously, yeah. I feel like we've thought a lot more about this. If you're interested, we'll put up some show notes so that you can actually read more about this, but at least it kind of sets the stage for now. So when you look at the number of abortion laws that have happened in the last several years, um, when you look at the period from 1995 to 2011, so you know, well over a decade there, you saw 292 abortion restrictions. Which is still wild, by the way. It's still a lot. But when you look from 2011 to 2015, four years, there are 288 separate abortion restrictions. So when you look at this graphically, and the Guttmacher Institute has amazing graphs um, sort of showcasing this, you can see that something ridiculous is happening in the last couple of years. So this is like a really big concentrated change that's happening over, you know, just past five years. The past five years, like recently. This year alone, there have been, the last graph they threw up had 28 state legislatures, but I think it's up to 30 now that have introduced a variety of different abortion bans alone since January 1st, 2019. That's so wild. And... And we can go into like why this is happening, um, which I don't think we'd ever be able to answer. But I think what's more interesting is the trend of what is happening, essentially, like the types of abortion restrictions. Yeah. So maybe can we talk about the ty the different types? Yeah. So I used to give this talk a long time ago to, to residents and med students about the themes that emerged and what used to happen. I think what used to happen. We're talking about a couple of years ago. The anti-abortion um laws that used to that we used to see a lot more of are things like trap laws the targeted regulation of abortion providers laws which maybe do you want to like what's a quick rundown of what a trap law is so a trap law is basically anything that is a law that tries to make uh, clinics spend more money to try to stay in or to specifically target the provision of abortion unrelated to the rest of healthcare. So some of the trap laws that have been struck down in Texas, for example, are that a physician has to have admitting privileges at a hospital in order to provide abortions. The, we can talk about why that is ridiculous, but only about two in a thousand women who have abortions in this country right now ever need to be seen in a hospital. Right. 
And they're not going to turn you away just because your provider doesn't have admitting privileges if you go to the ER there. And, and many pr other procedures like colonoscopies or other outpatient procedures, that's not a requirement. So it's like this abortion exceptionalism theme. Right. And then other things like the number of OR lights you have to have in your room. Right. The, number, the, the size of the hallways. Like things that require a lot of money to be in compliance with right. these laws but actually don't help have not right. been shown in any possible way to help actually right. with the health care. It's just essentially a way to shut down the number of yeah. clinics because they have no other creative way to do it. And it worked in Texas. So in Texas, before the trap laws started for HB2, there were 41 clinics. And after HB2, there were 17 clinics based just on these trap laws, not because of any other components of these clinics, because they just couldn't financially stay in, stay in practice. Right. So other themes that used to be more popular are bans on medication abortion. And I want to be clear, these things are still happening, but this I'll talk in a second about the things that we're seeing this year that are different. 20-week bans, it used to be a little more popular to ban abortion at 20 weeks for no particular reason. There is nothing that happens medically at 20 weeks. And waiting periods. So it's also a lot of states have passed 24, 48, 72-hour waiting periods, not including holidays or weekends. Um, again, not because it makes abortion any safer, but because it's one more thing they can do to sort of penalize, stigmatize, and shame women who need abortions. And again, we have good data to show that women are more certain about abortions than they are about any any other procedures. So we, again, is on our Instagram, but showing that like when you ask people who are undergoing medical procedures like mastectomy, knee surgery, other things like that, they are less certain than women who are having abortions. Women who are having abortions have already taken into account all these factors to make this decision and are the most certain. So waiting periods doesn't don't really change that certainty. They just make it uh, are another barrier for people obtaining abortion. Okay, so new restrictive legislation. You ready? I'm ready and I <sighs> am excited for you to explain this because this is so it's, messy. Yeah, and remember, yeah, yeah. we're not lawyers and yet we know so much more about policy than any other doctors because we freaking have to. You have to. You literally in order have to, to. In order to care for our patients, true. we have to know this. Okay. So what we're seeing happening right now are things like trigger bans. What is a trigger ban? Yep. A trigger ban means that if and when, because this is what they're banking on, um, Roe gets overturned, meaning any of the laws that you've seen recently passed in the last couple of weeks makes it up through the court system, through the appellate courts, all the way to the Supreme Court. If and when that happens, and knowing our Supreme Court set up right now, including Kavanaugh, if Roe is overturned and it gets kicked back to the states, meaning the states now have the power to decide what to do with abortion. Because that's, that's what would happen with Roe, right? If Roe gets overturned, then states will get to decide what to do individually. So if the federal court no longer protects Roe, then they've said or they've made a commitment to also no longer protect Roe in those states. That's a trigger law. The other thing is gestational age bans. We talked about the 20-week ban, but now it's more popular to ban them at six weeks eight weeks, you're hearing these quote-unquote heartbeat bills, which I don't like saying because you want to be totally medically honest, it's an embryonic cardiac activity. That's what it is. But they use this this nomenclature to in intentionally um, make for triggering language. Right, you know? right. So what happens um, at six weeks? I'll tell you what doesn't happen. <laughs> what doesn't happen is recognition of pregnancy in a lot of situations. Yeah. Because the first second that you could even realize you were pregnant, the, like the day you missed your period, you're already, based on how we measure pregnancy, four weeks pregnant. So that means that you, all you have to do is have an irregular period or 
um, be really busy with life, work, whatever, or that you wait, weren't like, keeping track of your pregnancy. Yeah, your, like wait three days to see if your period's going to come late. Or wait to see if it's late. And, and there you are in a situation where you potentially are already six weeks pregnant. And if you were living in these states where these laws, you know, are set to go into effect, you would be violating the law. Or you could realize exactly the day you miss your period at four weeks and then have a three-week waiting period to try to get into the one clinic yes. left in your state. Like, right. it's 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 a trap. It's right. such a trap. It's such a trap. Okay, so who has, who has done this? Which states are we talking about? Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, Georgia have all passed and their governors have signed bills after six weeks. There are stays on all of these right now because, of course, you have organizations like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU and Center for Reproductive Rights, Center for Reproductive Rights, suing and fighting back. But that's not a deterrent. They knew this was going to happen. All of these states right now, um, they're sort of banking on that happening. They in are fact. banking on it happening because they know that it has to go through the court systems and eventually get to the Supreme Court. All of these states, all of these anti-choice, anti-abortion legislators, they are banking on it going and reaching the Supreme Court and hopefully this being the impetus, whatever this is, whether it's a six weeks ban or whatever, to, to undo abortion altogether. That is the goal. Um, in Missouri, Tennessee, South Carolina, they, well, when I was sort of writing notes for this, that these have passed in, in one chamber, but actually Missouri just recently passed and their governor signed the eight-week ban. Um, so that joins the ranks. Florida, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, West Virginia, they've all introduced similar legislation. So when you think about this, Jen, when you talk to people, do you say, like, what it, what is your version of, the, do they know that this is in direct opposition to Roe? as they're passing these. Like how did this Who is they? Well, they this directly conflicts with Roe v. Wade, right? The protections Correct. in it's Roe v. Wade. It's completely illegal. It's completely illegal what and they're doing. So how is that possible? Like how as like a non-policy person, I'm like, how can you pass a law that's already illegal? I mean, you can, right? You can do anything in violation of the law with the expectation that someone's going to sue you. And that's what's happening. So they know that they're in violation of Roe. They know that this is, you know, causing undue burden and sure if in violation of Planned Parenthood versus Casey whatever. But they don't care. So they know that they are going to be sued. They don't care because that's part of the plan to eventually get it back up to the highest court in the land. The Supreme Court. Right. And a lot of these people think that Roe um, should never have been passed. A lot of these people think that Roe was passed on the wrong pretenses. I also love these pictures that we can post to of all the people who are signing these things, both the chambers and the governors, who are all white men. Old it's like white, yeah. all old white men. What the heck? Like... Except in Alabama, where the governor was um, a woman. What's her name? Kay something? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Kay Ivers. Kay Ivers, yeah, whatever. There's Aww. there's a special special place in in purgatory for you. I can't. <laughs> for you, Kay Ivers. Kay, I also you, want to Kay point Ivers. out, too, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, the guy who stole, essentially, the governor. Who stole? The gubernatorial seat. He, yeah. he stole the gubernatorial seat from Stacey Abrams. You can bet that if this had passed in Stacey Abrams, the rightful governor of the state was in place, this would not have And of happened. course, we can only speculate, but how much do you think this was part of why, of, of all that manipulation of Brian Kemp being elected was for oh, this? I'm sure. I'm sure, right? I mean, for so many other reasons, but this is, this is a so very, make no mistake, like a very strategic well thought that's, out I thing. guess that's the thing I'm getting at. It just feels so strategic, and it's I feel like we cannot strategic. get ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so other reasons or other um, themes, reason bans. So you're starting to see things like some states pan, uh, pass bans on reasons for abortion. So you can have an abortion for 
um, gender selection or for race. That's an actual thing, which Wait, I, I, I don't even understand. Don't even that. understand that because that like, doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I mean, wouldn't your fetus be the same race as you or the other person who impregnated you? But whatever. Um, genetic anomalies, things like Utah recently passed um, a law saying that you can't have abortions for um, Down syndrome or and Ohio's trying to pass a law that basically says physicians won't. won't be able to tell their patients that they have genetic anomalies because of the concern that they might then abort those pregnancies, Mm -hmm. which like anything that makes, we already have laws in place um, in many states, including Missouri, that require physicians to say non-medically accurate information to people seeking abortions, but to require physician to withhold medical information, I'm like, I'm getting so mad. I know. And then the last thing is method bans. So in the second trimester, the way that we do abortions most often is something called a D&E, a dilation and evacuation. That's just the medical term for the procedure you need to do that's like, at that point. That's like removal of the uterus is called a hysterectomy. Right. That's the right. name of the procedure. That's just what it is. Um, there are states, West Virginia and Mississippi, that already have D&E bans in effect. So essentially abortion is outlawed, right, after the first trimester because there's no procedure that's available to do it for you or if you wanted, you know, a labor induction, the other option, there's no hospitals that'll do that for you. Um, I also want to point out right now too, because this is happening uh, sort of as we speak or um, as we record, that the state of Mississippi essentially has a few days left to renew the contract for Planned Parenthood, which is the only and last clinic in the whole state that provides abortions. and the state legislature is intentionally like blocking that or not um, renewing, that renewing contract. the contract so that there will essentially be no abortion. So and, and I, this I is think the thing. This is the thing. It doesn't even have to. We don't even need Roe v. Wade to be overturned to prevent women from seeking abortion. Like if the state of Mississippi doesn't mm-hmm. renew the contract with the one clinic that right. provides abortion, Roe v. Wade doesn't matter for not the women in matters. Mississippi, right? Right. Like that is the most frustrating, right. crazy part. Legality doesn't matter if there's no accessibility. And that's the thing about a negative right versus a positive right. Like the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade is really a negative right, saying like, we're not gonna interfere, a non-interference. Whereas a positive right of like, this is your healthcare right. This is your, you must be able to obtain an abortion if you are, if you have decided to obtain an abortion, that's a positive right that needs to be protected. And we certainly don't have that in this country. Right. So hopefully we haven't depressed you too much with that. There is some good stuff going on. Well, and just, I just listened to a great speech by Stephanie Todi, who's the lawyer who argued the whole women's health versus Hellerstad case in front of the Supreme Court and won. And she talked about that, a few things. And her theme was basically like, Believe it or not, we've been here before. We've been here in this space where we thought abortion rights were threatened many times before. And we've even thought Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned many times before. And yes, this is a different context. And yes, it feels scarier than ever. But there is a way through. And we are fighting it on all fronts. So she was talking more about the legal ways that we're fighting this. So we're fighting this in from from sort of suing all of these states that are doing illegal things. We're fighting this in preparation for other Supreme Court cases that will hopefully help protect in a more uh, more positive and more affirming way the right to make medical decisions about your own body. And then also, we're fighting this in a different way that has never been seen before, unlike a social media grassroots people talking about their abortions way. Mm-hmm. That has never has not been done since before Roe v. Wade. And that was there wasn't social media for that. So we weren't able to do that in like a state 
to state across the country, across the world way. And I think those, the stories of people talking about their own abortions and the abortions of the people they love in their lives are so meaningful and really are changing this context. Like, I don't know if you feel this, but I really feel like with this past few weeks of things that people that I feel like have been kind of neutral in abortion have felt the need to really declare themselves as being supportive of abortion Mm -hmm. because they are realizing more and more that like not choosing a side is choosing a side. If you're letting this happen, you're letting this happen. It's sort of like Trump. Like if you're letting it happen, you're letting it happen or be part of the resistance, you know? And I think that's becoming clearer and clearer. I'm a little bit mixed, honestly, because I feel like I want to have, I want to maintain this positivity. And I absolutely agree with everything you're saying It is so important to vocalize this because if you think about what's the next thing downstream, it's to vote, right? Like if you are more vocal about it, if you spread the word, if you share knowledge, if you normalize it through stories, people are more likely to then vote because the only thing that matters at the end of the day is what laws get passed, right? And if you are not vocal, if you're not voting for the right people, then the wrong people make the decisions. And we're in this situation right now where the court is essentially stacked. And I don't say that in a way to be like really depressing, but also at the same time, it's a little bit no, totally. too late. It's Do you terrifying. know what I mean? It's I think it's too late for the Supreme Court, for sure. And I will depend on Stephanie Todi and all the yeah. amazing lawyers to fight that pot like piece of the battle. I think what what we do is basically show up and care for patients. We no do. Matter no, what. none of this has to I mean, we have to keep going. We and have to keep going and hope that with a new administration, with different people coming onto the court, it's yeah. enough to, you know, maybe we delay, we delay delay however that is legally possible these cases reaching the court hopefully until um, different people until are different in people are on it because right now it looks really scary and i think also it's not just the court right like the other side has known this for a long time it's the people who are deciding if planned parenthood's contract gets renewed in mississippi uh, right, right. you know it's the people who Local are legislators. yeah it's the people who are deciding to rent buildings to planned parenthood mm-hmm. it's the people who are deciding to show up and be clinic escorts like these are all these little pieces really matter and there, there is a bigger, scarier fight out there that we have good people on our side fighting. But we just I all... thought you were going to say good people on both sides. I was like, don't you dare. Oh, no. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm, I have no, like, false equivalent of, of who's good. And, and I think that is really clear when you look at who the vocal people are on both sides. The people that are fighting for women, who are fighting for people who are reproducing, who are fighting for families, are all on the freaking same side. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and it's our side. Okay, we're going to, um, I know, you can tell that we care so much about this because this is normal women's healthcare. but okay. We're going to get in now to the interviews because I these voices, again, are incredible, incredible voices. Um, and then at the end, we'll give you some ideas of how you can be more involved if it's something that you want to do or share the word, share this episode. Um, you'll hear from Dr. Stephanie Ho. She was the recipient of the George Tiller Award, which is an award that went to a young abortion provider and someone who is... Um, acting sort of against all odds in their local community to protect abortion rights. She is an abortion provider in the state of Arkansas, um, which also, unshockingly, has very limited abortion access, and she's out there doing it alone, essentially. um, So so figure out a way to support her. (laughs) So figure out a way to support her. Um, She's out there doing it alone, essentially, with the help of just her clinic staff, um, and is an amazing, amazing voice. Uh, Here's her story. So 
Um, I'm very, very fortunate to have the support of my family, um, and I have a great team in Fayetteville, um, all of who, I mean, I would not be able to do what I do without every single one of them. Um, we're, we're a wonderful group, we're all friends. Um, but probably the most um, inspiring thing to me is, you know, for every woman that makes that brave choice to, to choose abortion for her care. I mean, she's she's basically paving the way for the next patient and the next patient. And um, I think that, you know, in reality, it's the patients who are incredibly courageous, um, that, that they are exercising their right. Um, and I'm just there to help. So, I mean, one of the one of the things that I always, you know, tell my patients is that, I mean, we're here for you for whatever choice that you're deciding to make, for whatever care that you're deciding that you want or need. Um, and I mean, we just reassure our patients that, you know, despite all of the hostility, um, that, I mean, we will do everything and anything to, to help support them to get the health care that they want and need. Um, we did that um, whenever Arkansas banned medication abortion for three weeks. Um, we literally, helped make, you know, help patients make appointments out of their clinics. Um, we, you know, brought patients back in um, to, to do counseling so that they can go and get, you know, aspiration procedures. Um, I mean, we, we coordinated the care of every single patient who was displaced and, um, you know, a majority of them were able to get care somewhere else. And I, I don't think that without that, as many women would be able to get the services that they needed at that time, so. and. You know, you mentioned earlier, um, you talked about that moment of realizing the power of your voice mm -hmm. for doctors and everyone involved in this work mm -hmm. who is struggling to find that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of like, what was, what has helped you in that? I think the team. So first and foremost, you just need to make sure that you are speaking for and fighting for what your patients need. Um, whenever when I remember the first things that they told us when we, um, you know, started medical school is it's not about you anymore, and um, it, it's just I mean it's important just to pass down you know knowledge and information and and make sure that they know that there are people that are supportive. So I mean for these you know medical students that I. Um, you know, I mentor and those type of things. They all have my email. They all have my cell phone number. They are all welcome to call me at any point. Um, I mean, even even if it's just to talk. Um, I, I, there was a medical student at um, the medical school in Little Rock, and she was incredibly brave and, and um, testifying before um, the legislature and, well, planning to testify before the legislature. Um, before the um, college dean got wind. And um, they, her and I believe three or four of her other um, fellow students were taking, taken out. So basically the, the deans of the college came to get them to prevent them from speaking about or for abortion, even though they were very clearly not there as medical students, but instead as concerned citizens, concerned women. Um, and I just remember being so infuriated for them. Um, and I reached out to this medical student and um, just her email back to me, I can just really tell that 
she really needed somebody to, she needed to hear from somebody who knows about all of the stupid red tape um, that you just have to keep pushing forward. And, and she has. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that you know she's she's doing that because of me, but I think that you know for for all of us, we've got to have somebody behind us helping us. I mean, this is just this is not a one-person battle. Um, I mean, this is like I said, a battle of our lifetime. And um, you know, what happens within the next you know weeks and months and years is going to impact you know patients for years and generations and. Um, I'm incredibly, incredibly encouraged that there are so many like med students who are interested um, in in this, and if not interested, then are are recognize the inequity um, that that a lot of these patients face, and dis, you know, despite them you know choosing career paths paths that are not you know um, you know to become an abortion provider, they now recognize that their voice matters too, regardless of what field they're, they're in, because they are a physician taking care of patients, they're taking care of human lives, and you know, it's important that our patients know that we're there to support them at every step of, of their care, um, regardless of whether we agree with that decision or not. I mean, we have a responsibility to, to make sure that our patients can live their healthiest lives. So along the same lines, Dr. Rachel Mash received the Rashbaum Award from the Physicians for Reproductive Health Voices of Courage event. This was an award that went to someone who had a lifelong career dedicated to abortion rights. She's had a long and rich career mentoring residents and medical students in New York where she also practices, and even now continues to be a warrior for abortion care. Here's her story. So I think you know, the way I've approached this whole thing is, is really the, the paying it forward part of it and watching um, younger physicians, younger providers learning how to do what they do and to know that I'm helping in a small way to train future providers to, to make sure that we can continue to offer these services safely and that there will, people, there will be people around who know how to do that. So to me, that gives me a great deal of courage to keep going. All of, these, all of this legislation is really motivating our base and really getting people out of the woodwork. Um, so I think that in some ways, our base is, is being motivated to say, wow, this is something we kind of took for granted. Obviously, that was a mistake, and we need to really strive and we need to work together and figure out how we're going to make this not happen. It's taken courage throughout the years, obviously, because this is this has been a, um, a persistent issue since I've started, since I was in high school and did a project about abortions and went to see the anti-choice folks and went to see the Planned Parenthood folks and, and, and really got a sense of how divided the issue, how, how we could be so far apart in terms of how we think about it. Um, I think as we moved forward, um, there have always been protests and there's always been violence and the assassinations that have happened have happened throughout all, since the time Roe was passed, right? So I think that um, people have been emboldened now by uh, 
a federal government that gives them that permission to, to do what they're doing. Um, but that I think that um, it's always taken courage to get into this line of work. And I think the people who choose to do it, the mentees and the students that I see, it's something we talk about openly. And, and it is, I think they have exhibited incredible courage throughout the whole time I've been doing it. And now we're a little bit more laser focused in terms of what we have to do. It's not just about providing safe abortions, but now it's also about advocacy and education and trying to get people behind the issue and make them help them to realize how important it is and what it actually means. When you are um, mentoring students, residents, or um, when you have patients who come in, and right now during these dark times, you know, as, as we say, um, what is, what are some words of wisdom or some words of encouragement? Well, I always tell the residents that, you know, you need to decide who is your patient. And if the woman is your patient, then in some ways you have no choice but to do these because it's our job as women's health clinicians to keep, help keep women safe and to help them with their women's health care in general, which is all of women's health care, of which abortion is one aspect but that we need to make sure that we know how to deliver safe and effective healthcare for our patients. And just to keep that in mind and to just move forward knowing that you are able to now, as you train, to really learn how to provide safe women's healthcare for every patient that you encounter. Our last interview is with Helmi Hankin, who's the chair of the Clinic Escort Group, West Alabama Clinic Defenders, and Alabama's only statewide abortion fund, the Yellowhammer Fund. Here's her story. So I started escorting in October 2016. I knew the people who like founded the group at the Tuscaloosa Clinic, and so I joined it. And this was before Trump, so like, I don't know. It's gone through very many seasons, very many ups and downs. And then um, in fall 2017, I was appointed the chair of the West Alabama Clinic Defenders. So I'm the leader of the group, which kind of entails kind of being the site coordinator whenever I'm there, you know, deciding how we're gonna handle situations, being the liaison between the clinic and media or law enforcement and sending newsletters. So. I do a lot for the group, but clinic escorting truly is, like I said in my speech, one of the greatest joys in my life. Um, and I'm just so lucky that I have something like that. People don't really think about abortion, I see, until they're put in a situation where they have to. So we have a lot of people drive by the clinic and they see the protesters and then they stop by and ask how they want to help or um, just people who are students or professors and care about it, or even people who've lived in Tuscaloosa forever um, and want to find a way to, you know, help, especially considering, you know, just how politically against us it's become in recent years um, and the ban that was passed on Tuesday. Um, we've had even just a huge influx. We've had like 50 people apply to volunteer just in the past few days. Um, so, you know, stuff like this sucks, but it also is kind of encouraging because people wake up and they realize that this is a real problem. This has been a problem for a while and they want to do something about it. And clinic escorting is a really 
you know, rewarding way to do that once you desensitize yourself to the protesters' nonsense. Speaking of the protesters, what are some of the worst things that you've encountered? So, last Tuesday, myself and another escort got hit by a car. That wasn't by a protester, though. That was by a member of the community who was inspired by the protesters to oh come by the clinic. He's come by the clinic several times. He came uh, two days ago um, just to kind of intimidate and harass. Um, but generally, in Tuscaloosa, we are really lucky. We don't see... That was just a huge anomaly of violence. Generally, our protesters um, were just... I can't say enough times that we're really lucky. We have a pretty big buffer zone between the clinic and the public right-of-way. There's a whole parking lot in between and the area where the protesters stand. Um, there isn't a huge capacity for people to be bussed in or anything. So we do get 15 to 20 sometimes. An average day is probably anywhere from three to five. And we know what to expect from our protesters. Most of them are older men who either sit in their chairs and hold up their signs or stand with their signs and they still yell at the patients and their companions um, but you know I have their same speech memorized and generally people don't really want to go over there to talk to them if, unless they're bored because they're not the kind of enticing people who you'd want to have a conversation with especially when you know they're there to shame and guilt you and then of course they're there are different groups of protesters, so there's that, which is our average, just old white man. And then there are some that are sometimes called sidewalk grandmas at other clinics. They might be members of uh, Sidewalk Advocates for Life, and those people's uh, strategy is to emotionally manipulate you. So we have a CPC right next to our clinic, Crisis Pregnancy Center, and so they will um, tell people, encourage people to go to Choices, go to the CPC, or if people go over to talk to them, they'll promise them the moon. They'll say, I'll pay for your rent, student loans, daycare, car payments, cable, target runs. Because they know that a lot of people who have an abortion, a big reason is the financial Funny. strain, so they try and appeal to that. Um, but as we know with CPCs, um, they are not unable to fulfill those promises. Um, and then, has that I mean, ever worked for them? Like, do they? Where do they get off thinking that if I just give you a hundred dollar Target gift card, you're yeah, gonna like I don't be? Know. I don't know. And I've never seen them actually give anybody money. There's one protester right now. His favorite thing is to offer people five thousand dollars. And I'm still trying to find a f <laughs> what? Yeah, and I'm still trying to find a friend who can pretend to be a patient and go over there and call him on his bluff. So he's offering to pay them for their fetus. Yeah, which is like super illegal too. But you know. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, and wow. the, you know, once they, those sidewalk grandmas engage you in conversation, then they get into, you know, like trying to appeal to your pathos, but in a bad way. Um, and then we have members of the anti-choice terrorist groups, Abolish Human Abortion and Operation Save America, who come by. And those people are, you know, what people think when they think abortion clinic protester, the fire and brimstone, the more graphic signs, um, the really awful things they scream, don't kill your baby, you're going to go to hell. One of them told me the most poetic thing uh, 
protester ever told me was that I'm going to burn eternally for each baby I've ushered to slaughter. Wait, how? <laughs> oh, hold on, I just need to think about this. How is it possible to burn more than once? I don't know. They're maybe not good <laughs> at math. <laughs> I get it. I'm not really good at abstract math either. I have my phone calculator with me anyway, but I'm, I don't know. I'm just so desensitized to their nonsense and... Do you ever come um, back at them with things? Oh, like... we have a strict non-engagement okay. policy because, first of all, it's not really worth it. Mm -hmm. Just like the same way counter-protesting isn't worth right. it. It increases tensions with them. Our focus is 100% on the patient and the companion, keeping them safe, keeping the clinic a calm area, trying to deter violence, trying to yeah. you know, deter the harassment that they're facing, and engaging doesn't really help with that. You know, whether it's talking to them, whether it's blaring your car alarm at them or flipping them off. Um, and when patients walk, we, we're there to empower the patient too. So we don't say, don't talk to them. It's not worth it. We say things like, you don't have to talk to them. We don't recommend talking to them. Um, maybe sometimes but they're going to offer you misinformation. But, you know, it's up to them. You know, it get, you're waiting at the clinic for hours. Sometimes you want to go talk to them. But... I don't think they've ever changed anyone's mind. Statistically, over 90% of people who go to an abortion clinic already have their mind made up, and all that these trap laws like 48-hour wait and period state mandate counseling or the protesters do is just negatively impact their emotional well-being. And if they're going to change anyone's mind, it's because they were unsure about it in the first place. You, so you help run uh, the Yellowhammer Fund. Yeah. Tell me about that and how that's been doing this week. Yeah, so the Elhammer Fund started by these same people about March 2017, and they asked me to be a board member. So I was a founding board member. It's basically one of my babies, and we've been funding since January 1st, 2018. And so in 2018, we funded 313 abortions, wow. um, not to mention all the practical support we offer, such as gas cards or money to book a hotel because... Um, if people aren't familiar, Alabama only has three clinics, and obviously insurance can't cover, and we have a 48-hour waiting period, so people have to take off multiple days off work, find reliable childcare and transportation multiple times, um, and we see a lot of Mississippi at my clinic, especially because um, there's only one in Mississippi, and Tuscaloosa is three hours away from Jackson, so for a lot of East Mississippi, it's easier to go to the clinics, but then also like the two clinics in the Panhandle of Florida closed, so all those people are usually headed to Montgomery, and then we send a lot of people to Georgia, to, well, we send a lot of people to Georgia too because um, our we have a term limit, but also for a lot of people who are farther along than 14 weeks, which is the cutoff for Tuscaloosa and Montgomery, sometimes Atlanta's closer than going all the way up to Huntsville. So we see people from all the, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, all the surrounding states. I've seen Houston, Texas before, Louisiana, which is just tremendous that people have to travel so far for basic care. What gives you courage? Because the name of this presentation yeah. tonight was Voices of Courage. What gives you courage to do what you do? I just really, especially doing this work and being exposed every day to the realities of how these various barriers impact people's ability to exercise their right to bodily autonomy and their right to decide if, when, and how to parent, which is the basic tenets of reproductive justice and the, just viewing the intersectional oppressive systems at work every day just reaffirms my commitment 
um, to help people overcome these barriers um, and just being at the clinic, um, providing emotional support for people, making what can be, for most people it's not a difficult decision, but obviously being screamed at isn't a great time and um, just being able to be there for them, being able to validate whatever they're feeling. Um, it's really rewarding for me and obviously with both the fund and clinic escorting, there aren't a whole lot of wins. The Alabama just passed this abortion ban and the past week for the fund has been absolutely bananas. Um, just so busy. I was really glad to get this break to come here and um, it's been tremendous to be recognized as well. Um, just all these people thanking me. And when you're out there, like, I mean, we get occasionally thanked by the patients, but also I just don't, like, people say clinic escorts are heroes, and that doesn't really hit me until stuff like almost getting hit by a car or just being here and getting standing ovations from random strangers who, like, recognize the r importance of our work when maybe we don't, when we're just neck deep in all the madness. It's very brave. Thanks. I think you guys are very humble. Yeah. Oh, I can for sure attest to us being humble. But I think also, you know, we're humble and like being thanked is like overwhelming in the best way, but also like balancing that with staying alert and never forgetting that we are putting our lives at risk being out there, even on slow days when we're able to take out lawn chairs and sit on the sidewalk and just babysit whoever's standing out there. It's still, you know, there's a threat of violence at all times. And for me, it's not the protesters who scare me as much. Of course, we have our very aggressive protesters and at our clinic, we have a off-duty police officer two days a week to monitor their activity. But for me, I'd rather have a hundred of our regular protesters than you know, 10 of people I don't know, because that's how stuff like getting hit by a car happens. These are just random community members who um, incite violence because they're empowered and catalyzed by the legislation that federally is being encouraged or state level is being passed or, you know, the stuff these protesters post, just the rhetoric surrounding abortion right now. Um, it can be really scary. Um, I usually keep a list of people who have threatened to bomb or shoot up our clinic in my pocket at all times um, to see if they show up. And luckily, I've never had that happen. Obviously, I wouldn't be here, but... I just want to pause and say that you keep a list of people who've threatened to bomb the place that you work in your pocket at all times. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. No one else does that as part of their job. Yeah, no. And, like, it's sometimes, like, because I, I mean, I'm not desensitized to the risk, but, like, just stuff like this reminds me, like, that's not people's normal and, like, the stuff that we've grown used to, the stuff they say, or, you know, it's sometimes we're just so focused on the patient that, you know, the other stuff kind of. You gotta learn to get used to it. You need a certain thick skin to escort. It takes a special type of person to be able to deal with that. It can also be incredibly emotionally draining depending on the day. Um, but for me, I find strength also in the community I surround myself with. Um, like the people in the clinic escort community, not only in Alabama, but across the country are my family, the people in the abortion funds community. It's just really validating to 
surround myself with people who share my vision for the world and my ambition and values. Um, it makes it a lot easier. It makes me feel a lot less alone. I hope that people listening to this will be inspired and also sign up wherever they are in the country. Oh, yeah. Um, people can go to postrowhandbook.com to find a... There's uh, Robin Marty wrote this book, uh, Handbook for a Post-Row America, and she made this website, and she has this map on there of all the... Um, reproductive rights related organizations that she found in every state so that's an easy way to find stuff in your community obviously you can go to National Network of Abortion Funds website and find your local abortion fund but also just like calling the clinic and seeing what kind of support they need we've had dozens of calls dozens of emails there are people from California and Massachusetts like emailing us saying how do I come escort for a couple days? And to them I have to say, use your resources on local groups. First of all, our protesters are not a tourist attraction, but I promise you there is a clinic in your state that also has protesters. But yeah, no, there's help needed everywhere. And um, our fund has gotten an overwhelming amount of support and donations from people all over the world and all kinds of celebrities and stuff. And we are so grateful that words cannot express how grateful we are for the amount of support we've gotten. Um, and it's all of a sudden, too. Um, you know, two weeks ago, it wasn't this easy to fundraise. But also just for people to know that there's groups in their area who've been doing the same work forever. People don't need to be reinventing the wheel. You don't need to join an auntie network. Just join something that already exists and already needs your help. All right, guys, I really hope that that motivated you to, if you aren't already caring enough about this issue, care more, talk about it more. Don't be afraid to use the language abortion. If you have the funds or resources, please feel free to go to our website. We'll list some um, organizations that where you can donate if that's something that you are, are interested in doing. The Yellowhammer Fund is one of those great organizations. And abortionfunds.org has organizations and abortion funds in every state. Which, yeah. So go your state has women who are having trouble seeking right. abortion, even if you're not in Alabama. Not just in Alabama, yeah. Um, Physicians for Reproductive Health is also an organization that works to get physicians speaking more openly and um, in the media about the work that they do. Planned Parenthood, obviously. The, the, A A the ACLU. These, the, these are our fighters, and this is our team. So support our team. We can do this. Vagina, vagina, vagina. If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening.